Good morning, everyone. Those were some awesome songs, and they, uh, there was kind of a little bit of a collusion that happened between Bill, who picked out the songs, and myself. He asked me earlier in the week what we were going to talk on, what I was going to talk on today, and uh, I really want to talk on God's glory. Um, so, as you noticed, there were all kinds of references in the songs to uh, God's glory. And it's a, a theme that I think unifies the whole Bible. It causes everything in the Bible to come together so we can better understand it. When I first became a Christian, it was kind of, uh, I was looking at it like there's a lot of do's and don'ts, a lot of rules, do this, don't do that. And I could never really figure out how do I put it all together? How do I What's the point? Um, I mean, it was great that Christ saved me. I appreciated that. But then what? Then what do you do? Um, One other little caveat before I start is, if I say the word treasure, um, I'm not Southern. I've never lived in the South. Um, For some reason, when I was young, I thought that would be a cool thing to do is have a Southern accent. And that, that word has stuck with me ever since. So when you hear it, I hope it doesn't throw you off your, uh, you know, listening to me. I hope it doesn't make you confused as to, and start thinking about, is he a Southerner? Did he, is he from Alabama? Um, recently, I had a conversation with a client in the office, and he had been in a few weeks prior. He lost his wife. He was pretty shook up about it. But at the time, I made a mental note that I wanted to talk to him about death and see what he believed in it. And that's always a great subject to bring up to anybody and everybody if you want to talk about the Lord, because everybody has that on their mind. So we, I said, what's your philosophy on death? What happens after we die? And he said, nothing. It just, nothing. Um, And I said, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me because you look at this world and the beauty of this world and the design that's of this world, what's the point of this world if it just ends in nothing? And he didn't really know what to say to that. Um, So we continued on and we kind of got on the subject of heaven and he responded that his wife is probably in heaven because she was a Baptist. Um, I don't know if that's a guarantee. Um, (laughs) Go to that church and you will be saved. He said that he believes in Jesus. Now, if you take a simple approach to scripture, that's all you have to do is believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. He said his son also believes, and his son looks at it like it's a fire insurance policy. I'd heard that people believe that, but I'd never really heard anybody actually say that. Um, So we went on and I started talking about, he started talking about all the bad things in the world, and I said, well, mankind loves to suppress the truth about God. And there's always a point in every conversation with an unbeliever where it goes, it's just, okay, we're done. And that was it. 
And so he switched the topic to talking about going to the movie and seeing uh, Top Gun. Um, but uh, when I thought about his idea of Jesus, his, what he said about Jesus, there's something really radically wrong. It's, there's something missing in that. I mean, he could have been talking about taking out an insurance policy with State Farm or Allstate. Now, the Bible says in Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's what was missing from that conversation. There was no joy. And God wasn't any more glorified in his belief about Christ than, say, the Allstate agent is glorified in selling up a policy. So I want us to kind of think about what was missing and how we are to approach life and what is our overall purpose, what is our overall theme in life. So if you want to turn to uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31, this verse really intrigues me because we're here today worshiping the Lord, but this verse says that there has to be more to it than just in church worshiping the Lord. This verse talks about every situation in life, everything that comes up, from the mundane of drinking and eating to going to the mechanic and getting the bill for several thousand dollars to fix your car. How do you glorify God every day? 31, 10, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. I think that's right, is that right? Scaring me, man. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, the context of this verse was the whole question of whether or not you could eat meat sacrificed to idols. Obviously, we don't have that issue today. But I think we can still use this concept, this reason for life, and that is to do all to the glory of God. What they wanted to do, or what, was, what it was going on with, uh, with the verse and the reason Paul said it is that, um, again, the meat sacrificed to idols. Who can eat it? Who can't eat it? What about our conscience? Um, in situations, you're not supposed to seek an advantage, but the main thing you're looking to do is spread the gospel. And at the end, he says, in verse 11.1, 1, he says, to be imitators of him, Paul, as he is an imitator of Christ. So this again, it focuses, uh, focuses us on God's desire to be glorified even in the mundane aspects of life. It also implies that we can be motiva motivated by some other kind of glory. And the easiest kind of other glory that we can be motivated by is our own selfish glory. 
we, we can do that very easily. We can turn things into our glory instead of God's glory. So if we're told to do this, what does it mean? And how are we to do it? And most importantly, why, why should we do it? Let's start, let's break it down, let's start with God's glory. What is God's glory? It's difficult to define. It's kind of like trying to define beauty. How do you define beauty for somebody? All of us have a different definition of beauty. Now, John Piper has a simple definition that I just want to throw out there. I thought it was really very succinct and very good. It says, God's glory is the beauty of his manifold perfections. It can refer to the bright and awesome radiance that breaks forth in visible manifestations. Think about the angels when Christ was born. That's a brilliant, visible manifestation of God's glory. Or it can refer to the infinite moral excellence of his character. In either case, it signifies a reality of infinite greatness and worth. His glory is eternal. It existed in the Trinity, within the Trinity, before the creation of the world. It's existed eternally. And Jesus refers to sharing his glory with the Father in his high priestly prayer. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed, John 17, 5. Creation happened when God's glory went public. It was shared in the Trinity, and then it went public in creation. It was the overflow of God's joy in the Trinity, the overflow of God's joy in his glory that caused the creation of the world. And here's, what does God do with his glory? Well, God loves himself and delights in his glory above everything else. God loves himself and delights in his glory above everything else. You know, we can easily think about God's design, God's purpose is redemption, is saving us, is we, we tend to put ourselves at the center of God's design. But God's design is all about himself. We're important, but we're not anywhere near as important as his glory. Now, how do we know that? It says in Colossians 1.15, he, Christ, is the image of the invisible God. It says in Hebrews, it says the sun reflects the glory of God and bears the very stamp of his nature. So here's Christ, the exact image of God, the Father, reflecting God's glory back to him. You're starting to get a hint at what our job is in life, what we're supposed to do, because we're images also. And of Christ in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, Colossians 2.9. When the Father beheld the Son from all eternity, as I said, he was beholding the exact representation of himself. Therefore, one of the best ways to think about God's infinite enjoyment of his own glory is to think of it as the delight he has in his son who is the perfect reflection of that glory. So God enjoys looking at his glory in Christ. He sees his glory in Christ and it pleases him, makes him happy. 
How do we know that? When Christ entered the world, God the Father said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And as God thinks about his son, he is infinitely happy. Isaiah 42, one, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. There's never been a time when God was disappointed with his son Christ throughout all eternity. They're very happy in the Trinity. So God has been uppermost in his affections for all eternity. You've heard of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which most likely you have. Uh, It talks about the chief end of man, chief end of us, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But have you ever thought about what is the chief end of God? Again, Piper, I'm quoting Piper on this, he says, the chief end of God is to glorify God and enjoy himself forever. I love that. Already it starts to deal with my pride, my ego, my sense of importance. It puts me in my place and that's really, really helpful if you wanna worship God. One more Piper quote, if you don't mind. He just, the guy just has a great way of saying, saying it. So, the reason this may sound strange about God glorifying himself and enjoying himself forever, and I've kind of hinted at this, is that we are more accustomed to thinking about our duty than God's design. What he means by that is we think about, okay, our duty is to go to church, to gather together. Our duty is to love our neighbor. Our duty is to love God. Our duty is to put off the sinful aspects of our flesh and put on Christ. There's a lot of duties that are involved in in being a Christian. So oftentimes that's what we think about rather than God's design. And when we do ask about God's design, we are too prone to describe it with ourselves at the center of God's affections. That's so true. We may say, for example, that his design is to redeem the world or to save sinners or to restore creation or the like, but God's saving designs are penultimate, not ultimate. He likes to throw out these large philosophical terms too. Penultimate means less. Ultimate obviously appears it's the highest. Penultimate is below that. So all these saving features of God's grace towards us, those are penultimate, those are not the ultimate design that God has. So God performs all this redemption, salvation, and restoration for a purpose. And it's for the sake of something greater, namely the enjoyment he has in glorifying himself. So he saved us for his enjoyment because it glorifies him. And that's what we see in Ephesians chapter one over and over again. We're saved for the praise of his glory. Again, it kind of puts us, takes us out of the center, which I think that ever since the fall, that's where we've tried to place ourselves, is at the center of everything. In other words, we didn't like God and his plan. We wanted to create a different plan. So we wanted to be like God and make our own plan, make ourselves at the center. Another aspect of God's glory is his happiness. 
and Will referred to this, but, in, but our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And because of this, he is infinitely happy. No one can thwart his actions. Think about that. Put yourself in that position. If you were able to do anything you wanted, well, if you and I were able to do anything we wanted, the world would be in worse shape than it is now. But God can do whatever he wants. What that means is there isn't a higher power that can thwart his actions. Nothing can stop him from doing what he wants to do. And you think, okay, well, God, how did you, what's with all the sin in the world? What's with Russia picking on a smaller country and bombing the heck out of them? You know, what, what's up with that? You got to think of it as God looking through history through two lens a narrow angle lens and a wide angle lens. When Christ was crucified, when he hung on the cross and he was shamed, disrespected, God was looking at it through the narrow lens. That means that he hated that just as much as everybody else who loves Christ. But then he also, God has a wide angle lens. And what that means is that we read also that God was pleased to crush his son. God was pleased to put Christ on the cross and kill him. Those are really hard concepts to keep in mind. What, how can he be, on the one hand, hateful of what happened to his son, and on the other hand, he's pleased to crush his son? When you look at it, at redemptive history through God's wide-angle lens, you see what his purpose was in crushing his son. <clears throat> Again, to bring many sons to glory, for the praise of his glory, all kinds of different purposes as to why God uh, did what he did. Primarily, though, to magnify his glory and uphold his righteousness. We, so we, we see that God is not a frustrated God, but a deeply happy God. He's not frustrated with doesn't like what's going on in the world, but he's not frustrated with it because nobody can frustrate his long-term plan. It will happen. Every act of God is to preserve and promote his glory. Isaiah 48, 11 says, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So you're beginning to see that God promotes, protects, his glory, that's the primary goal of what he does. All the actions he takes is to promote, provide, protect his glory. He won't share his glory with another. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was like God. God made him lose his mind, crushed him, made him insane. So he became like an animal, eating grass in the field, lost his kingdom, and it was only when Nebuchadnezzar got his mind straight and glorified God did God return his rightful mind to him. Herod, in the book of Acts, received praise, received praise from the people, calling him that a god, that he spoke like a god. Immediately, God struck him down. God's not going to share his glory with anybody. Again, I love that because that puts everything in its rightful place and lets us know what we're supposed to do, what we're supposed to be like. Why does God, why do you think God defends his glory the way he does? Why, why is he so 
onto his glory. But if you think about it, if he decided to make somebody else more glorious or make something else more glorious, he's no longer a righteous God. And the minute he does that, he becomes idolatrous. He is putting something above his value. So he continues to protect his glory and fight for it, promotes it, and it's for our benefit. Because what it means is that we have a God in the heavens who will never give up his glory. We have the ultimate value that we get to worship all the time. So it's for our benefit as well. Okay, so now I want you to think about what do we do with that glory? So God created us for his glory. Isaiah 43, six and seven says, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Also, we were created in God's image. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Have you ever wondered why God creates a bunch of images of himself? Why do people take selfies? Because they want to look at themselves, right? We're images of God. Now, we tend to stop and think, okay, I, that's great that I'm an image. What does that mean? Well, I, I can worship God. I, can, I know right from wrong. I can reason. I'm, I have God-like characteristics like that. But that's, again, focused on what we get, who we are. Instead, what we're supposed to do as an image, is glorify God. That, what that means is we reflect back to God his glory. He sees us and he's supposed to see his glory. That's how it's supposed to work. Again, because his glory is paramount in everything. But as images, what have we done? Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Usually when when we hear that, and I hope my voice lasts, I sound like an adolescent teenager up here, um, cracking voice. Anyhow, if uh, when we usually hear that, we think that we just missed the mark. We shot an arrow and we we missed the target. But it's far more insidious than that. It's far more than we just are bad shots, right? A better way to look at what it means is when you go to Romans chapter one, verses 21 and 23, 21 through 23. Oftentimes when we think of sin, we see the actions. We see the homosexuality, the drunkenness, the drugs. We see all that and we say, you gotta stop that. That's not right. Oftentimes we try to legislate morality, and so what happens is we focus on the actions rather than the root cause. The root cause of all sin is given in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. It says, for although they knew God, which is interesting to me, means everybody knows God in one way or another, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and, here's the key, exchanged the glory 
of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's the key to all sin. That's the root cause of all sin is exchanging the glory of God for some other lesser glory. Now, if you stop and think about that, that's helpful for us in evangelism because we're not focused on the actions that they're doing. We're focused on the fact that they have exchanged the glory of God for some other kind of glory, whether it's drugs, which comes back to them, they enjoy drugs, it gives them a high, whatever. That's the problem though. Also on top of that, it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that Satan blinds the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan blinds them. They can't see the glory of Christ. Again, the glory comes, becomes an important theme. Can't see the glory, and Christ is the image. Now, God fixes our problem, most of us, some of us, however you want to look at it. When you become a believer, when you're saved, what really happens is that God, in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, it says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of what? Of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Again, it's all about the glory. And again, Christ, that's what he does for us, is he opens our eyes, we've been blinded, he opens our eyes so we can see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So you gotta wonder too, okay, thank you God, appreciate that. Why are you saving people? Why did he save you? When you were saved, it was probably most likely you wanted to avoid hell. That was probably one of the big reasons. But the real reason Christ, that's an important reason. The primary reason that Christ saved us, says in 1 Peter 3.18, was to give us our heart's desire. God wanted to give us our heart's desire, which is God himself, Christ, suffered once for sins, that he might bring us to God. That was his idea, is to bring us to God. That's what he did. Through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that was an amalgamation of several verses. Uh, Romans 5, 2, 11, Ephesians 2, 18. Again, in Ephesians chapter one, it says over and over again that we were saved for the praise of his glory and to be conformed to the image of Christ so that again, our glory can be displayed to the Father. What does God think of those who turn from him and pursue other things? For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can have, hold no water, Jeremiah 2.13. 2, so what happens is God is the fountain of living waters but when we exchange that fountain for a different fountain, it's a broken cistern and holds no water. Okay, so all that's good, all that's great. What do we do with it? How do we apply it to life? Well, one thing that's pretty simple to, 
to remember and to use as a reason for, when you're talking to people, people need to answer four questions. Where did we come from? Why are we here? What's our purpose? And how are we to live? And then finally, what happens after death? That's the question that I brought up to my client. But any of those questions are great for starting a conversation about God. Where'd we come from? Creation came into existence when the glory of God went public. What's our purpose in life? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. How are we to live in accordance with God's word for his glory? What happens after death? Again, we see the glory of God for those who honor him, accept him, uh, but those who don't end up eternally in hell. Okay, uh, go ahead and turn to uh, Galatians chapter five, starting verse 16. Okay, so now we know there's the glory of God, but what do we do with it? What? I guess I better turn there too. Okay, Galatians 5, starting in verse 16. Okay, the way I wanna, want us to think about this next section is pursuing our joy in the glory of God. If the glory of God is our ultimate purpose, if it's the ultimate value in the universe, how are we to handle that? What are we to do with that? Is it a duty? Is it a grit your teeth? Okay, God, I'm gonna do this no matter what. How do we do it? Can we do it some days and other days not do it? Off and on? Okay, Galatians 5, 16, starting in verse 16. But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, just as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another envying one another. So if this is on us. If we wanna pursue joy in the glory of God, when you take a look at everything that happens in the flesh and you take a look at everything that happens in the spirit and you think about yourself as being an image, which one of those two reflects God's glory back to him? Obviously, walking in the spirit. It's his spirit, so he produces his fruit in us and that is what glorifies him. It's up to us to keep in step with the Spirit. It's up to us to walk with the Spirit. God helps us, obviously, 
because the Spirit's been put in our, our hearts. But the, the downside too is the flesh will steal your joy. If you think that the glory of God is the greatest value in the universe, then try to walk in that. Try to um, reflect back to God his infinite worth and his glory. Let's turn to Hebrews 11, chapter, or chapter 11, verse 24. I know it's kind of crass to say this, but I don't really know how else to say this. It's, and this is not sanctioned by Will, okay? So don't get upset with Will. Um, but it's almost like to put it at a base level, what's, what's in it for me, right? What's in it for me if I glorify God? That's very crude, right? But God's not a God, he's not a selfish God where he's gonna withhold his rewards, his joy, his spirit from us. So keep that in mind. What happens when we glorify God? Okay, verse 24, starting in verse 24. By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. So his actions were to look for the reward. He endured for the reward. He put off the sin that was a possibility for the reward. Okay, go to Hebrews 12, one and two. Okay, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is a real good example of what happens where we have to endure all kinds of pain, just because you're pursuing God's glory and you're looking for joy, you're looking for reward, doesn't mean it's gonna be easy. Oftentimes it's gonna be difficult. But what I'm trying to get at is pursue that joy, actively seek that joy, change the mindset that says joy may happen or it may not. It, it's not a pixie dust kind of thing where Tinker Bell comes along and sprinkles joy on us. We need to pursue our joy and be active in it. Walk in the spirit, pursue it. And when we are joyful in God, what happens? God is glorified in us. The more satisfied we are in him, the more glory he, we give him. Okay, James chapter one, verses two and three. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. 
For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. We're tested so that our faith, we can use our faith. And what does it mean by using our faith? Well, if we know something about God, we can reflect back to God that characteristic. If we're in a trial and we know that God perseveres, because we have the example of Jesus Christ, he persevered on the cross, um, just say to yourself, okay, God, I'm gonna persevere through this trial because your son did it and you are full of perseverance, Lord. You persevered with me, you were patient with me. Pick a characteristic of God, that's what it means by having faith, and reflect it back to him, worship him over that. In Acts uh, 5:40 and 41, and I'll just read that. And when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. They suffered, they were beaten, but there was joy in it. How does that happen? Let's talk about some specific issues about the glory of God and how it affects us and how it affects our joy. One big one is anger. People can be angry quite often. I can be angry quite often. Where does that come from? What does that mean? Why do I do that? It comes primarily from pride, which is an inflated opinion of yourself. But if you believe that God is glorious in his sovereignty, then all things are under his control. Whatever happened, whatever person came into your life or whatever situation happened, if you get angry, you're basically telling God that you don't know what you're doing, God. Why did you do this? It reflects directly back to God. Instead, we wanna be humble because Christ was humble. We wanna reflect back to God true humility That is what pleases God, is when he sees his character reflected back to him in us. Another subject is evangelism. That's a a tough one, I've thought about it a lot. Why do we not evangelize? We have a lot of reasons. Most of them start with I. I don't wanna be made to look foolish. I don't wanna lose my friends. I don't wanna risk my career. What does all that sound like? What does all that look like? It looks like we're more concerned about our own glory than we are about Christ's glory. What did Christ do? Again, think about what Christ did. Obviously he came to this earth to share the gospel, to spread the gospel. He is the gospel. So instead of thinking about ourselves and what may happen to ourselves when we bring up the subject of God and try to talk to somebody, we hate rejection. Christ was rejected. I know Christ that you were rejected. I know that you tried to, that you shared the gospel with people. That's all I wanna do. That's your goal is to reflect back to God his glory. That's all you want to do. It's not up to you to convince somebody to become a Christian. 
But if you remain silent, when you're prompted, when you think it's a good opportunity for remain silent, it, you gotta think about it, it's probably more about you than it is about God. Okay, over and over again, God speaks about the rewards available to us. He commands us, this is a command, this is a strange thing, to delight ourselves in the Lord. How can you, how can you delight yourself when you're under a command? How can you delight yourself in that authority when they're commanding you to do so? It's kind of like the first, the greatest commandment. Commandment, love your Lord, your God, with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. We, we think about love as a feeling, a voluntary act. I mean, think about it, those of you who are married. On the first date, if you had said to your future wife, I command you to love me. That doesn't go over very well, right? She probably would not become your future wife. So, but why does God do that? Because God is our greatest treasure. He knows it. He knows that we need him. And so he puts it in a command form. It's not a suggestion. It's what's best for us. So how do we get more of God? What do we do to get more of God? We, we gotta have more of God. If you don't know, this is what eternity is all about, is getting more and more of God throughout all eternity. More and greater enjoyment of God throughout all eternity. That's what it's all about. It's not about just getting into heaven because you have to ask yourself, okay, if Christ wasn't there in heaven, would I still wanna go? Christ is our greatest treasure. God is our greatest treasure. That's what we're there for. And he will disclose more and more of himself throughout eternity. Think about that. An infinite God, glorious, ultimate value, letting us know more and more about himself all the time. But how can we learn more about God here on earth? John 14, 21 says, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and disclose myself to him. Again, it's a matter of walking by the spirit, obeying the Lord and you will get more of the Lord. What a great, what a great promise. What a wonderful promise. Now sometimes, oftentimes, he will put us through trials in order to get us there so that he can disclose more of himself. Trials come about and we have to exercise our faith. But as it says in James, trials, while difficult, there's a reward there. And that's the joy that God gives us. The joy that we get, that's what makes us completely different than the rest of the world.
The more we get of Christ, the more we can glorify God. It just goes around and around. It's a, it's a circular deal in some respects. If you're not getting joy in God somehow, some way, if you're not experiencing it, it's not God's fault. It's us. We need to find a way to obey him, walk in faith, walk by the Spirit. And remember also that the world is all about suppressing this glory. They're all about suppressing God's glory, making it difficult for the people of God. That is just part of the game. Or it's not really a game. Part of how we are in life, what's going on in life. And also remember that sin, it's the actions of sin, that's not the problem. Homosexuality is, while bad, it's not the problem. Think of it as how does that, what did they do? How does that demean God's glory? Think of it that way and how you can talk to people. Not saying you shouldn't do that, which they shouldn't, but what's the root cause? What can we share? How can we help them in that area? Reflecting God's glory is our great purpose in life. It is what results in our greatest joy. And I have to tell you, it it took me a long time and it's still taken me a long time to get this figured out. It seems simple on the surface. It's hard to implement in life. The flesh is always there. The flesh always wants to steal our joy. The flesh always, Satan always wants us to get off track and not glorify God. And when I was first a Christian, I, I don't know if I said this or not, I, I was confused. Okay, God, you saved me, but now what? what? What happens now? Again, it was focused on me. God saved me, I must be wonderful. God saved me, I get to go to heaven. Thank you, God. There's so much more to it than that. When we die, we'll be in the presence of God and see his glory. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, it was also in one of the songs. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Our joy will be exponentially greater than it is today, and our joy will increase throughout all eternity. Let's pray. You are the Lord of glory. And glory is something that we can only imagine what it really means, Lord. We thank you that you have saved us for that purpose, to praise your glory, to love your glory. We thank you that you were filled with joy and you just wanted that glory to be displayed and you created all of us. Help us, Lord, to not be entangled by sin and difficulties and help us to realize the flesh and what comes from the flesh. Help us to realize our pride in everything that we do and help us to walk in the spirit instead. Because we know that we're made in your image. We are images, we're image bearers. And our job our purpose in life is to reflect that glory back to you. 
Because you do uphold your glory. You do enjoy your glory. You love your glory. Help us to do that, Lord, in a way that is true to that cause, true to that purpose. Please forgive us when we do things in our own flesh and the darkness that is contained there. There's no longer, during that act, a light that shines, the glory that reflects back to you. Please forgive us for that. We know, though, Lord, that you can overcome, you have overcome the world. You can overcome all sin. Help us, Lord, to focus on your glory and who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.